We live in a constantly changing world where the speed of information is changing how we think and act and connect with one another. When people in a society lose faith in their institutions, in God and in each other, the nation collapses. We need help rebuilding trust and tying it all together. Welcome to All That To Say, a podcast exploring the interrelatedness of all things in long-form conversation. A relief organization director from the Middle East joins Jim Lyon to share his story of leaving Islam to follow Christ and the complex weave of faith and politics in his country. Today, I'm so pleased to have as my guest a man I'm going to call Samir here on the All That To Say podcast. Samir is not your real name, but we're using that name as a kind of nom de plume so that you can be protected in that the world in which you call home can be a dangerous place. And we want you to feel free, Samir, to speak and to share from your heart without being concerned about what might wait for you when you return home, because this broadcast has been placed on air around the world. So, Samir, thanks for coming to join us today. So glad to see you. Yeah, thank you, Jim. It's always great to be with you and to uh, talk about different topics. So, yeah, thank you. I have known you, Samir, for a few years. I've seen you in your home place, and uh, I've seen you abroad as well. And it's always a pleasure to be in your company because you're a really smart guy. That's my sense. And I think you also have a fantastic story, um, a story that's just not like every other person I meet. And so let's start there, uh, Samir, about your story. Tell us where you were born. Yeah, I was born in Jordan. Jordan? Um, Yes. The Hashemite Kingdom? The Hashemite Kingdom. And um, um, I have lived there. I, I lived there for 19 years. So before I born leave. and raised there, really. Yeah. And uh, tell me about your family. How many brothers and sisters? You have mom and dad. Uh, yeah, I have uh, three siblings and two sisters. Uh, two sisters and uh, three brothers. And uh, yeah, my mom and my dad. And um, you know, in Jordan, families are a little bit bigger, so it uh, also includes the grandmother and the grandfather <laughs> and the uncles and all of that. So yeah, we are like a moderate family. It's like well. 15 member. And so in the birth order of, of your brothers and sisters, what number are you? I am. I'm the older, the, you're, the oldest. You're the, yeah. the firstborn. The firstborn. Does that carry uh, some kind of uh, responsibility for you in an ordinary, traditional Jordanian home? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I grew up, uh, um, you know, hearing uh, my father, my uncle, everybody telling me that if I win in life, and they would use that word, your brother's going to win, they're going to win. If you lose, they're going to lose. So. Everything happens based on your uh, achievements yeah. and so your trajectory. Responsibility That's it. was very heavy. This is how they perceive things in uh, in my um, um, culture. It's like you become the father of your uh, uh, younger brother and sisters. Mm. And so, as you were growing up, you were growing up in an Islamic culture. Yeah. Uh, Jordan is largely a Muslim country, is that right? Yeah. And mostly right. Sunni Muslim? Yes, 99, 99.7% well, of Sunni Muslim. That seems so, almost the whole. Exactly. And, and uh, growing up in Jordan as yeah. part of a Islamic family, what did you imagine your life? Now, don't tell me about when you were 19, uh, but when you yeah. were 12 or 15, what, where did you see yourself going? What did you think? You know, um, growing up in uh, a culture like Jordan and the Arab world, uh, in particular, um, there is unfortunately uh, a tendency toward 
uh, cloning everybody. So it's like mm-hmm. everybody is similar to everybody else. So they just repeat the cycle of like that, that the ancestors lived. So um, there was no dreams and no um, future beyond what was written already by our uh, forefathers. So um, that's that's an interesting question, Jim, but the answer so is not. You, you saw yourself just repeating the pattern. Absolutely. What did your father do professionally? Um, well, actually, he, he used to work at the mosque um, uh, when I uh, was born. Then he was bored, bored with uh, going to the mosque every day five times to, you know, call to prayers. So he um, he just quit and he op- opened like small shop. But so, when you say he worked uh, at the mosque, yeah. did he actually have an income working at the mosque? Yes. He what, would, he would call, call, he was not the imam, so there are two people, uh, two people work at the mosque. Uh, the imam who lead the prayer and uh, Mu'addin or the guy who calls for the prayer. And this was your father? That's he was father. calling for the prayer? Yes. And was this in a city or in a village? It was a village. And so one mosque in the village perhaps? Yeah, yeah. at, at the time, yes, one. And, and your father is the voice yes. of the call to prayer. I mean, it seems like a kind of place of stature. Would it be seen so? Well, the... the the imam is everything. It's That's just so. like uh, some guy who works at the mosque. So yeah. if he's not there, somebody can replace him I immediately. See. But you can't replace the imam so so simply. So um, Yes, sure. <laughs> All yeah. right. So your father moved on, opened a shop and so yeah. on. And this is the world you're growing up. And you're thinking, maybe someday I'll lead the call to prayer or maybe I'll... I'll have a shop. It, it, it's not necessary growing up to just become like uh, my father exactly. Um, but um, there is no, what do you call it? Like uh, aspiration, like uh, there's no ambition. Because as I said, um, trying to make everybody looks the same like everybody else is a mission that somebody established like ages ago, and they are really walking by it. They just try to um, punish anyone who is not walking between the lines. And the lines are really narrow. They, You can't go right, you can't go left. You have to become like everybody else. So that's one of the things that I'm like at war with currently. And there's some point in your life where you decide, I'm not going to live in this system. I mean, even just as you're describing it, it betrays yeah. your own sense of, I. as I was growing up, I eventually came to terms with the reality that uh, I wanted to have a dream or an aspiration beyond what was assumed for everyone else in my town. You know, when you, when you live in a, a very religious, strict uh, community, uh, a fatalistic, like people believe that God has ordained everything to come, you don't really have a lot of options because you start um, you start think um, that you know the metaphysical is more important than the reality here. It's like what's going to happen after death is more important. So you focus on that. Uh, and I I arrived to a, a conclusion when I was probably thirteen or fourteen that it doesn't matter what I can achieve in life. Uh, I'm going to die. So I have to focus on the eternal, not on the physical. And this is something that is very popular in the Arab world. You don't really care about the present. You don't care about cleaning the streets or, you know, having beautiful um, things out there. 
because you need to work hard for your grave and the afterlife because they believe that they stay in the grave for a uh, like a magnificent amount of time before they go to meet Allah. So uh, I I I was by 13 or 14 year old. I was thinking, okay, I'm going to just focus or dedicate my life to Allah because it doesn't really matter uh, what happens in my life. And so that sounds like a very serious, sober young man yeah. uh, who is calculating, you're analyzing the world as you understand it, and you're making a decision that I'm going to forsake uh, the pursuit of pleasure or riches or yeah. ambition in this world because I have to just prepare for the next world. And I'm going to do that by serving Allah. Well, it was a narrative at the beginning. You know Jordan Peterson? Yes. Uh, Jordan Peterson always talks about when the narrative becomes the reality. So uh, it took me two years uh, for that narrative to become uh, mm -hmm. real in my life. So it was just a, a narrative. Yeah, yeah I, I want to dedicate my life to Allah. But when I, when I was 16 or 17... Um, there was this Danish cartoonist who drew the Prophet of Islam, and uh, that just ignited the violence in the Arab world. And they were, you know, calling uh, to boycott uh, the West and to destroy the West and all of that stuff. And I was emotionally touched by a, a sermon by a Kuwaiti uh, uh, imam. His name is Khalid al-Rashid, and that uh, sermon was titled, um, O the Nation of Muhammad. And uh, the content of that sermon was just, you know, stories and stories about uh, how heroic the friends of the Prophet were in defending him, just laying their lives for him and, you know, just dying in the path of protecting him and how we um, were um, to do the same, just to... It was a call for the present hour yes. to defend the honor of the prophet to just sacrifice uh, the lives in the and for his, for his sake and 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 the issue for those who may not recall this is that uh, this danish cartoonist had made a representation of the prophet which is forbidden in islamic thinking yes. you, you don't you don't make any drawings or fashion any statues yeah. uh, of anyone but certainly not the prophet and this was an affront uh, because it was a cartoon, made it probably magnified the the offense. And same you, same thing happened later, uh, years later, with Charlie Hebdo in, 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 in Paris, Paris. The and, same thing, yeah. yeah. And so, uh, you're telling me that in the wake of that controversy, you heard a sermon that called you to yeah. stand up and defend the Prophet too, because you were persuaded that he had been um, shamed or offended by these cartoons. But, but we cannot neglect other factors that contributed to that and still contributing in many lives today. Uh, that's poverty and ignorance. Mm -hmm. So if there is no education and there is uh, poverty and, you know, bad economy, uh, people tend to start to seek alternative. Like, okay, if this life is not going to work, if nothing good is going to uh, come out of this life. So why don't I just invent, uh, invest in my other life? And that's uh, um, probably I feel the same. In the, in the past, I would say, um, because I grew up in a poor family, I didn't care about, you know, growing rich or something. But actually, the thing was, because I grew up in a poor family, that factors to push me toward religion and mm -hmm. uh, fundamentalism was a present. So um, 
with all these factors and the emotion, uh, the emotions that uh, were you know taking the place at the time. Um, yeah, I decided it's uh, it's going to happen. I'm going to dedicate my life to defend the Prophet and Islam and uh, spread the teachings of Islam all over the world. So, well, and it sounds like also you did not imagine you had much to lose. You know, so so the risk assumption sure. makes it more palatable. I, I can risk everything because I don't have much here to lose, and I can invest for the future in serving uh, the prophet in the way in which it was framed for you. I, I hear that. Sure. And so you made some decisions. Now you're becoming a young man and you're making a decision to give everything you've got yeah. to this uh, pursuit of honoring the prophet. Where did that you know, lead you? It was, not, it was not really difficult to give uh, everything because as you just said, I didn't have uh, much to lose. And the second thing is that when you decide to dedicate your life to the service of Islam, you don't really get to do a lot of things. Just pray five times a day, and you you just you know read a book, an old book, and uh, you don't try to um, invest in the society. You don't uh, contribute anything, really. You can live on the top of a mountain and just you know be as a good Muslim as anybody else. So uh, uh, there was no calling to hardworking. So that was appealing to me. Well, yeah. uh, I get that. No, yeah. appealing to not the hard work and discipline sometimes sure. you might find in a different culture. But yeah. wait a minute, uh, Samir, you had a family, you had a yeah. mom and dad, you have brothers and sisters. There has to be some richness or some uh, joy in your family of origin. They cared for you. They loved you. Uh, I mean, in this commitment to follow Allah, are you walking away from your own sense of, well, maybe someday I'll have a family. Maybe someday I'll have a wife. Or is no, that not, part of the Not equation? really, because, uh, you know, most families would uh, be uh, joyful um, at such news. Like, uh, you know, I, I'm going to become a, a very devout Muslim. Yeah. That, uh, that brings honor and uh, kind of it just takes the anxiety from my mom and dad away because, okay, he's going to become a devout Muslim, so he's not going to do drugs or mm -hmm. go to jail over some crime. Yes, right. So he'll have a discipline. Of course, of course, he, can. <laughs> of course he might end up uh, a terrorist or something, but that is like a, a very um, difficult scenario to imagine. That's remote. Because, because it's remote because of my age at the time and because of the security in Jordan, because we, we have a very good you know, army and security system. So not everybody who was, you know, who wanted to volunteer with Al-Qaeda or ISIS would be, it wouldn't be easy for them. Yes, so, yes, so uh, yeah. But you, but you made this decision. What did that mean for you personally? What did you give up? What did you choose to follow as a path? In, in, in concrete terms, tell us what life was like. Yeah, um, well, I was, as I said, a very young guy. It's like 15, 16, 17 at this age. I was uh, just, you know, um, it, it was our, uh, what do you call it, impressional years. Mm -hmm. I, ha I was not a complete or whole human being yet. I don't know uh, that much. I'm still in high, uh, in high school. Um, what, what it meant is that dedication means I'm going to change my lifestyle. So I'm not going to play video games. I'm not going to just go with my friends and do this and that. I'm going to start reading the Quran, just read the history of Islam, just memorize more and more of the history of Muhammad and what we call the Hadith. 
and just I have to I have to weigh the the cha- I have to change the way that I dress. Um, so I used to dress like Taliban people, so just the the dress mm-hmm. of that. So um, I have to go to the mosque five times a day. One of them at four in the morning. Uh, it doesn't matter if it's cold or uh, it's uh, uh, warm. Mm-hmm. I have to be there. So I I did all of that. I changed my whole lifestyle and. Uh, of course, with that, uh, some violence comes. Uh, the violence because, uh, you know, um, self-righteous always try to justify um, their feeling of, you know, enmity with God. Mm-hmm. So by doing extra things for God, what, this is how I see it. If you are bullied in school, like somebody is bullying you, and then there is an enemy to that guy who is bullying you. You would become an enemy to that enemy just to show him. You see, I am on your side. The same thing happens with Allah or any other deity that just um, um, like impose violence and uh, call for violence. So with Allah, it's the same thing. I used to um, hate everybody who doesn't obey Allah as if I'm telling God, you see, I'm on your side, just yes, forgive me. Or, something. Yeah, and, yeah. And, so, and I used to um, beat my brothers to help them to wake up for the dawn prayer at four to go with me to the mosque. Um, I, used, I used to use my belt <laughs> to yeah. uh, do that. And so, of course, I was not stable because I was trying to prove something. Yes. I was, you know, at the beginning when you decide to dedicate your life to uh, Islam, you feel you're not justified. They don't use that language, but I, I'm using mm-hmm. it now. Mm-hmm. You you don't feel peace uh, because you are just um, starting the work. But after months or a year of dedicating yourself to Allah, if you look deep and you find that feeling and justification, there's no peace with Allah. So you start wondering, um, what, what, what I am doing wrong? I do everything by the book. What's going on? I play so, by the rules. Why am I not winning the games? Yeah, it's uh, just that, as the Bible says, it's just like uh, the wrath of God is there. You, you can feel it. You can touch it. And you want to get rid of it. So the relationship between a man and, uh, God, and God in Islam is just uh, a relationship that is built on avoidance and uh, greed. I want to avoid hell and uh, uh, suffering in this life that God can't control. And, and and I want to win heaven and I want to win the blessings. So there is no real relationship. And I'm telling you, there is no one Muslim in the planet Earth can say something, can say anything to oppose this. This is the equation in Islam. You do this, you avoid hell. And probably I will give you some blessings. If you don't do this, I'm going to send you to hell. So it's just conditionality at its best. Or worst. But you've, as a young man now, you've dived completely into this world of thought and conduct. And yet you're at my table today yeah. uh, and you're not dressed like the Taliban. In other words, you, you've obviously walked away from that 
frame of I'm reference. quoting the Bible, yeah. <laughs> now, now you've, you brought the Bible up. I mean, <laughs> clearly something's happened. What happened yeah. to you? Where, where did you turn away from that course? You know, I, as I was saying, I was dedicating everything to Allah and to, uh, you know, defending the Prophet. And uh, I, I was seeking a justification or what they call in Islam, seeking peace and uh, acceptance. I wanted God to accept me. Um, at 4 a.m. in the morning, I would go to the mosque reciting the hadith or the saying of Muhammad, tell those who walk in darkness to the house of God that God will give them light on the uh, latter day or in the, in the later life. And I, I would recite that. I was like, okay, God, give me light on that day. But of course, um, that's not gonna, that was not going to happen anyway because... I know now that God gave me light in this in this life. You didn't have to wait till the end. He did, I didn't have to wait. But so, how did the light come? What was the light? Well, after a year of uh, you know practicing uh, Islam, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say that I was like uh, somebody who is important and a scholar. I was a very young guy who just go to the mosque, but I was very dedicated. I would just you know l- as I was living in the mosque, so I would go for hours and hours. But after a year of doing all of that, nothing changed. Nothing changed on the inside. It was the same. Um, so I gave up. I was disappointed. I felt like there's nothing. There's no way to to fix this. So I gave up. I um, returned to my old lifestyle. Just changed, you know, got rid of the dress and all of that stuff over my head and the scarf and. And just return to my uh, regular life. Of course, the imams, the sheikhs from the mosque would come to visit me and try to convince me. And they would say that Satan is taking you away from Allah and all of that. And um, I was not convinced. <laughs> Thank God. And then then um, something happened. Um, I, was, I believe that I was opening a, a shop, like a DVD shop over the summer mm-hmm. um, I wanted to do something and I, my friend had this uh, cyber cafe and he said why don't you just take this corner and you just install some shelves and uh, sell DVD it was the time of DVD and Blu-ray <laughs> yes. and um, so there there was a carpenter and he I called him and he said he came to uh, install the shelves and it took him some time because it was a lot of work and he had to work over, like during the night. And uh, we were, you know, carrying a conversation. And um, he wa- he converted to Christianity before that. His brother converted to Christianity, but he did not share that with anybody. Um, his family knew and they there was huge problems for him. They took his wife, his children, and he was in jail. I didn't know any of that. Then the this judge, be- because of his faith, yes, because of his faith. But he's, he, you don't know any of this. I don't so know any of this. Okay, no, he just worked for me, and and I, uh, I asked him. No, there were, were rumors that he is an atheist. He was an atheist, so I asked him. Um, I asked him, "Are you an atheist or something?" He said, "No, no, no. I just, you know, follow a different version of Islam and stuff like that." And I was like, "All right, what is that version? Why don't you share with me?" And he started just, you know. He, he didn't know how to, you know, um, 
lie <laughs> to me. <laughs> There is no other he was, version. He couldn't so deceive I, you. Yeah. So he couldn't deceive me. So, uh, but he started, you know, mentioning some, um, uh, you know, things uh, happened during their life of Muhammad. He would uh, ask me to read that, read this, uh, see or find out the interpretation of this verse. And so he was trying to um, brainwash, or, you know, uh, brainwash me without, not in a direct okay. way. And um, then when he was about to finish the work, he, he told me, hey, why don't you just read the Bible? And I was like, come on, man. Bible. Like, You'd heard of the Bible. You knew what yeah, it was. Yeah, of course, of course. But, but had not read one or seen one. No, I, I, I have. My, my father, when I was twelve, probably he got uh, uh, the Bible. Um, he got it for free from some guy who was selling books at downtown, mm-hmm. and um, I, I read it and I prayed the prayer at the end of the Bible. But mm-hmm. I was just reading it. I was not. I, so I just making fun of my probably a brother. It's like, okay, I'm going to become a Christian now. Yes, right. Lord Jesus, accept me. And just for fun. Um, and uh, then my uncle, he came and he burned it. He said, this shouldn't be here. And he burned it. And I, I remember where he did that. Um, then um, at that time when this friend or this carpenter said, uh, why don't you just read the Bible? I, I didn't take it seriously. But I did, I did. Uh, I went online, Google, Bible, New Testament. Um, it took me directly to the New Testament because the word Al-Injil in Arabic means the New Testament mm-hmm. and the Torah is the Old Testament. So um, I ended up reading. And reading online. At Matthew chapter five, that was. That's where you landed in That's your where Google I landed. search. Yeah. And, and uh, this is famously the Sermon on the Mount, yes. at the beginning of it. And, you know, I, I have grew up in my theology gym, so now I believe that. <laughs> I believe that I was, uh, I was among those who were, who belonged to the Father, and he gave us to Jesus. This is how I see it. There's no way that I was only touched or changed by just reading. It was something amazing happening inside my heart. Lord was, the Lord was preparing you for even, this. Even, even when I was a dedicated Muslim, I was, you know, uh, as if he had created this gap in my heart and I was trying to fill it, as St. Augustine said, was trying to, to fill it with Islam or with dedication or what, whatever. So, but when, when I read the words of Jesus, that was like the peak, like, the authority, the person. So I felt immediately, this is different. This is nothing. You recognized it as something different than anything else you'd read. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It was not about the words itself, how to fast, how to pray, or love your enemy. I was not, I, these are great words, but there was something so powerful behind them that was happening in my heart. So I was perceiving Jesus for the first time as the object that's going to fill this gap. The answer. And the answer, of course. And and you're <clears throat> describing a moment, yeah. uh, Samir, like, like an experience. I mean, there's a progression, of course, of your life and your questioning and your doubts and all of that. And as you've described, a kind of a supernatural uh, intervention in your life, even when you weren't conscious of it. But 
you're describing, I got online, I Googled up, I got to Matthew 5, I read yeah. some words, and you're describing that there was a sudden kind of like awakening or realization. Yes. Is that fair? That's what Absolutely. happened Absolutely. And so then what did you do with that? Well, at the, at the beginning, I felt like there, there was a mountain over my shoulder and the mountain was down. Finally, like I, there's no weight. Um, that weight was um, was my um, endeavor to save myself. Mm-hmm. I felt like, oh, that you know this. I, mm-hmm. I, I felt this um, literally, like there was weight, and the weight is gone now. I'm, I'm, I'm like I feel free now. You know, this is how. If I, if you want me to just describe it, the moment, and. Um, I didn't really need to understand the Trinity. Didn't read, didn't need to understand incarnation, the nature of Jesus. Nothing. I didn't care about anything. And there, there were websites that trying to address problems in the Bible and all of that stuff. I didn't care. I didn't pay attention. I was like, not not that I didn't want to believe because I was you know deceived or something, but I didn't want to look even because I didn't care. It was so powerful that mm-hmm. what happened was so powerful that I just saw something with my eyes that you, you're not going to change my mind about. Okay, so uh, um, I felt free and I, I just uh, felt rage, enraged by what Islam has done to me. Oh, so the the counterbalance to your euphoria was a sense of anger. Yes, that your world had been framed differently, and that you'd been denied that peace or joy that you were now knowing. That's what I'm hearing you say. Yeah, you know, you know when you play Need for Speed, have you ever played that game? It's like racing, and there's the power. Uh, you just hit the power button, and the car just. Um, there's like flame coming yes, out of yes, the car. Yes, you know yes, what? Yes. What is that? Yeah. You know what? You know what I'm talking about. That moment, just click that button, and I'm still in that face. I'm just still racing toward with anger and with joy. So anger because of what this ideology has done to our people over the past 14th century, because it misrepresented the image of God in our minds. And as a result, everything was destroyed. All the values were distorted. All the, everything that human being is about was changed because of how we perceive God in the Middle East, in the Arab world, in the Islamic world. So I was angry, I'm still angry at that. And <laughs> well, I mean. But I was joyful because God is there, and God has, um, you know, manifested His love to us through Jesus Christ, and uh, so it's a dilemma for me. Yeah. So, as this as this moment came to you, and yeah. you were accelerated in your joy, but also this brewing anger yeah. about what had been. What did you do? Did you run home to your parents and your siblings and say, "Guess what I've discovered"? Or yeah. What what happened to you? Well, it was it was a traumatic situation for me going to the mosque and you know learning all of these things about Islam that the only way of salvation is to sacrifice your life, whether through jihad or through whatever. So when I found Jesus, 
or when Jesus found me, it was, um, so I was about to die for this, and here's Jesus dying for me. So the, the gap was so huge between the two that mm-hmm. I couldn't just shut up. So I kept talking to everybody on the street. Literally, I, if I just meet somebody, if I meet somebody now in a minute, I would be like, do you know that what we know about Christianity is not true? You want to know the truth about Christianity? Why don't you just let me tell you this and that and this and that? Do you want to find out the truth about Muhammad? Come, I will tell you. So it was crazy. I was like, young guy, crazy, going, just um, doing things that people get killed over. <laughs> but God, God just protected me. Uh, uh, and I, uh, uh, I told my father, um, Apparently, I was highlighting something that was in his heart for a very long time, so he did not react. He actually um, carried on the conversation with me. and He didn't reject you out of hand. No, no, no. He was just asking me questions, mm-hmm. encouraging me to find out the answers for those questions. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, he would give me an evidence for the, that Islam is true, and then he would ask me, how do you solve this? And I would go find out the answer, and then get back to him and talk to him. I, Of course, I shared this with my brother, with friends. Uh, at the beginning, people would laugh at me because, you know, I'm a young guy who was just criticizing Islam. Then um, when things got serious, and I kept doing that for a long time, I, uh, I, had, I got into troubles. Uh, a friend of mine just, you know, he just hit me on my face. He said, if you ever say this again, Next time, it's not going to, to be just on your mm-hmm. face. And uh, then, of course, there was the um, secret police, uh, you know, who try to maintain the stability of the country. They don't want any troubles, and uh, apparently they have uh, uh, confronted some evangelism in the past, and they know what what happened later. A family kills their son or something, so they don't want to destabilize the country. So they called me, and there was, you because know. Because you had been reported. Yes, I have been re- reported. Um, and they interrogated me for three, four hours, over three, four days. They would do the same every day just to make me, to wear me uh, out. And then I decided to leave the country. It sounds like... Um a very, very difficult journey, Samir. I mean, yeah. your family, everything you've known, you've been energized by this new faith that you have found. And and it's now threatening your, your life. I mean, the secret police, what's their threat? They're going to arrest you? They're going to... Actually, they were very, very clear. Leave the country. That, that was... That, because their main object was not necessarily protecting Islam. It was protecting the stability yeah, I would say quo. I would say they don't really care because they they care more about politics and security mm-hmm. more than this. Um, so the the solution was you either uh, you whether shut up and never mention this again or you leave. Right. Because you can't go to a church, you can't invite somebody to explode that church when they find out that you're there. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So we don't want any troubles. So leave or shut up, or we will shut you up. So that's that threat. The threat was, we'll take you downstairs. This is the word they used. 
downstairs and you will find out what's going to happen later. So I had to leave. Um, so And where did you go? I, I went to Lebanon. Lebanon, which is nearby. Yes. Was it easy to move into Lebanon or did you have to go through some seven, seven, seven hours uh, drive, but I had to go through Syria. Mm. Yeah. Which is its own story. <laughs> It is, yeah. It's, it's. You know, I couldn't. I couldn't. Uh, actually, the plan was I would go through Syria to Lebanon, and then on the way, I would think of where to go. Should I just, you know, get off in Damascus, or should I continue to Beirut? I didn't have money. My family couldn't support me, and they wouldn't support me because they didn't want me to leave because I was young, apparently. And uh, but I left anyway. And uh, I ended up in Beirut, Lebanon, and uh, yeah. But did you know anyone in Lebanon? No, you were just no striking out on your own because you knew you could not remain in Jordan and conform to the world you had left true. behind. True, true. So I ended up in Lebanon in a Catholic monastery. Um, I lived there for a while. Then um, I moved to the Bible College. I studied there and. Uh, from there, yeah, you know, there's sort of the story. Here we are, <laughs> a, a, a long journey, but still a dangerous journey. And, of course. And with many uh, costs that you've had to incur. Yeah. Samir, it seems like uh, once you had this meetup with Jesus, once you became persuaded that Jesus was in fact Lord, that for you there just is no prospect of turning back. In other words, the, the cost or the price has to be paid for you is not relevant because, you, because you've discovered something you think to be genuine and authentic, and there's no turning back from that, which has led you across the world. Is that fair? You know, I, I, I believe in the total depravity of man. I believe that everything we do, we do for our, for our own benefit. So if there is anything beats the grace of God— just show me. <laughs> There's nothing. So that's, that's for me, it was like, you can't really move from freedom to slavery. You can't. So it's not about serving God or being loyal to God. When people say that, I believe them. I believe them. But I think there is something underneath. For me, it was not that scenario. For me, it was like, there's no other way to Reconciled to God. And, and here's what I believe about the relationship with God. I believe that it's not about salvation anymore when you know Jesus. You don't care about forgiveness of sin. You don't care about salvation. Once you have met him, he's the subject, as you use the word all the time. Jesus is the subject. So when you don't care about, oh, let me, let's find how many sins are forgiven. I don't care. Just I meet him. I love him. So I say this all the time. We used to believe that, I used to believe that Jesus was my bridge to salvation. Then I found out that Jesus is my salvation. So that's how, for me, it was, I found Jesus, or Jesus found me, but there's no other place to go. Mm -hmm. There's no way I can live without this, without the love, the acceptance, the unconditionality of God, because I know myself. I know that I cannot please God. I cannot... Uh, fix this on my own. And even, um, I don't believe that I I will ever be able to maintain this relationship on my end. It has to be provided by the other end. So, 
clearly there are many, many hundreds of millions of people in the world yeah. who would see Muhammad the prophet as their key to life. And you're, you're walking away from that saying, no, no, Jesus is the key to life. And if they were listening today yeah. to your story, they might, <laughs> is it possible they might say, well, that's your story, but yeah. hey, I've had a different journey. Islam completely fulfills me. What would you say to them? Well, I have a very distinguished way of saying this or, or of evangelizing people. I tell them you should be ashamed of yourself. You don't love Muhammad. You don't love Allah. You love yourself. So they would, they would um, like answer to that. Like, what do you mean? Of course you love Muhammad. You love Allah. I look in their eyes and tell them, no, whatever you do or you don't, you do it for your own sake. You're doing you pray, you do everything possible because you want to win a place in heaven. You don't care about Allah. You don't want to meet him. As a matter of fact, it's better if you never meet him. You just want to enjoy the afterlife or to enjoy some blessings here. And the same goes with Muhammad. You don't really care. You just obey and love Muhammad because that is the way for you to secure your own salvation. And you know that you cannot secure it. So you are doing what you're doing in the hope that maybe I will end up winning this battle. So it's just like bribing God. When you pray, you just bribe him. Just keeping a score. Every time you talk to him or you pray, you just say, you see, my credit is going up, you see. And when you do something bad or not uh, in the footsteps of Muhammad and the instructions of Islam, you just, you are ashamed because you're losing, not because you have broken his heart or because you care about him. So that's, that's what I say to them. I don't, I don't care if they love Muhammad, love Buddha or love anybody else. I just want them to try to understand why are they doing what they are doing. And by the way, I tell this to Christians who do the same with Jesus. They just do good things because this is the way to make him happy. You don't care about making him happy. You care about, you are the one who is making him happy and that's the way you get the credit. We need to understand that the only faith on the face of earth that provides unconditionality is Christianity. It's the only faith in the world that tells people I don't care about your performance. I love you regardless of your performance. So Christians and, uh, and non-Christians, everybody needs to hear the gospel every day, at least once every day, that you're loved, accepted, unconditionally, not based on your performance, but based on the performance of somebody else. So that's how I tell them. You know, we've watched uh, over the last few months, uh, Samir, the drama in Afghanistan. Yeah. Uh, it's been much in the news all around the world. Uh, the longest war in American history, uh, a war that was not just about Americans, but also Western European powers, the NATO allies, uh, even the Turks as part yeah. of the uh, NATO alliance. On the ground in Afghanistan, following the uh, terror attacks of September 11, 2001. And here we are 20 years later, after all the effort and energy and uh, the, the loss of life and the 
trillions of dollars. And now the Western powers have vacated Afghanistan. Yeah. And there's the Taliban slipping into the vacuum quickly. Uh, that that Western intervention in Afghanistan, which is like Jordan, uh, a largely almost completely uh, Islamic country. Yeah. Sorry. That, that has disrupted the, the, the cycle of life there. I mean, there's been many, many uh, challenges and interruptions and cost. I'm not here to necessarily talk about the, the wisdom of that yeah. military intervention, but do you think there's anything good now that we've seen 20 years after the Taliban take over the country again, those 20 years, do you think there's been anything good that can come out of that? Well, um, when you look at the aftermath of the American invasion, this is what I call it, the American invasion of Afghanistan, $2.6 trillion spent, thousands of Americans' lives have been lost, and uh, America is embarrassed in Afghanistan with what's what happened recently. When you look at this, you you want to find something that was worth it, right? That's your question. Like, what was it worth it? I believe that the Americans went into Afghanistan with a very clear um, um, goal, mm -hmm. and that is to uh, end the existence of Taliban because Taliban provided Al-Qaeda with shelter and support, and Al-Qaeda were responsible for what happened in 9-11. And guess what? That goal was achieved in December 2003, after two months of the invasion. What happened then is that America extended their goals Let's build a nation mm -hmm. of value. Of, uh, let's just build a democracy. And they were right to think that way because America has rebuilt Japan, Germany, South Korea. We can't deny that. America is responsible for all these prosperous, wonderful countries. And they said, okay, let's do it in Afghanistan. That's a miracle. And we we're mm -hmm. going to make it happen. But they did not take into consideration the difference, the huge difference between um, Afghanistan and Japan. So even though they share the A-N at the end, but they don't share anything else. <laughs> well, because, you know, whatever you believe, as I just said earlier, whatever, whatever you believe about God determines your life. So if America wants to do something in Afghanistan, it should have done evangelism. <laughs> that is the only thing that could have changed the face of Afghanistan forever. Not teaching... Um, people, at, uh, students at Kabul University, that men can get pregnant if they implant wombs. That is ridiculous. So I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just furious about this because you had the opportunity for 20 years to change that country for real by replacing the object of worship in the hearts of people. Because the object of worship is the reason and the, it's the root behind every single thing that's happening. When Al-Qaeda hit that War Trade Center in New York, they were not saying we are winning and Americans are losing. They were saying to Allah, Allah, you see this? Do you accept this sacrifice? Do you accept this offering? So it's all about the object of worship. So mm -hmm. that's why, was it worth it? Um, unfortunately not, because the, the Taliban is back in power, probably now with like... Uh, a moderate um, administration that they are sending out some, you know, good words to their neighbors in Iran, Pakistan, all of that stuff. But what 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 is happening to the society in Afghanistan now? Women are losing their rights. You know, 
things are crazy. So, for okay. future reference. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, the Japanese believed that their emperor was divine. I mean, they have quite a different uh, landscape of religious thought. Yeah. It's not Islamic, but it was religiously motivated, the Japanese nationalism of its time. Of course, the Americans uh, maintained the emperor, but uh, asked him to be but on radio. Humiliated, so humiliated the emperor. That, that he was not deified anymore. That's, and, exactly. And that's to your point. That's what happened. Changing the, the object of worship or the, yeah. the nature of that culture. Do you think that would, is that possible in Afghanistan? I think that there is a pre-Islam virgin of Afghanistan, right? Mm -hmm. And there is a post-virgin. So the same way Islam has infiltrated Afghanistan and the rest of the Islamic world, there is another way to infiltrate. I'm not saying it in a negative notion. I'm, I'm just saying, you know, you, you can't change, as we were talking earlier, the fabric of the society um, by trying to teach them some liberal agenda from the West. Mm -hmm. You need to address the elephant in the, in the room. You need to address, to address the, the object of worship, which determines everything else. You know, you know, some Christians, you know, for them, God is not that interfering with their life. You know, they worship God on Sunday, but the rest is, um, their own creation. That's false because 2,000 years of history, of Christian history, is what guarantees freedom, human dignity. This is not, I'm not saying this. Friedrich Nietzsche said this. If you are an atheist, you can't believe in human rights. You have to be Christian to believe in human rights. That's that one of the greatest philosophers of the recent uh, history. And so why there, the West respects humans? because of Christianity. So God is interfering much more than people who don't believe in God think. So the same thing in the Islamic word, God is there, Allah, that what, the, what they think God is, is interfering with everything they do. And especially in Islam and the ultra-Orthodox uh, group of uh, Judaism, because God is controlling how they go to the restroom and how they make love. So it's that deep. So. Well, I I would postulate, I learned a long time ago traveling abroad, that what you believe about God determines everything else in your life. Absolutely. And if you don't believe there is a God, that also informs and determines the rest of your life. I mean, it is a primary question. Because that's a belief about God. But yes. Or, or maybe how you, how you wrestle with spirituality uh, will inform everything else about your choices and your destiny, you might say. But... You represent Islam as a kind of monolithic point of view uh, that, well, Islam says this, Islam says There's that, one, uh, yeah. but aren't there some that would argue, well, Islam does have some, you know, core ideas that make it Islamic, but that there's a, some diversity in the way in which people experience it or pursue it. So it's Anwar Sadat, once president of Egypt before he was murdered, uh, was he Islamic in the way that Taliban is Islamic or uh, are there... Are there moderate voices that might still think that Muhammad's the prophet, but they're not all in on cutting off people's hands uh, when they oh, yeah, absolutely. are caught in theft? I mean, how do you respond to that nuance? Yeah, absolutely. Um, first of all, the problem in Islam, 
and what makes it different than every other religion is that Islam um, has established a way to control people's life that is different than every other religion. I will give you an example. If you have ever been to the army, you know, if you are enrolled in the army, you know that there are um, five, six, seven, four times a day that everybody has to come, stand in line, and just do nothing. Probably mm-hmm. say their names. I don't know. They have to do it. It's a discipline. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's why Muslims pray five times a day together. They go together. That's how Islam is f- imposing this idea that you are an army of of Muhammad, of Islam. So this is one way there are too many things like this. So the structure of Islam itself is that controlling people is at the core of Islam. Second thing, Islam is different than Judaism and every other religion, and in, in, in it's that politics system, political system. So Islam is not only a religious system, it's a political system. And you cannot split that. You cannot separate both. So for people who are trying to promote the religious version of Islam and just, you know, neglect or ignore the political side of it, it's like you are trying to separate the meat from the bones. You can't do that. The only way is to kill Islam, and that's that's the only way, or create a new Islam. But we need to address the problem. Some Muslims today are addressing the problem. They're saying, okay, so you can't separate separate both. So we need to fix the sacred scripture itself. We need to go to the text, reinterpret it in a d- totally different way. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we need to delete it just to erase this. So these are the authentic, honest people who are trying to restructure Islam. And I know a few of them, I know some Christians who are very involved in this process of trying to promote moderate version of Islam. And of course, Muslims in the West, they they are happy that the West is accepting this new version of Islam. And I'm happy. You know why? Because even if they are lying, some new generation are going to believe this new version of Islam, and that's, that's going to end up for the benefit of everybody. But if you want to take from an academic point of view, it doesn't work. You have to fix the text itself. You have to go to the sacred scripture and try to fix it. But absolutely, Muhammad Anwar Sadat is just like the majority of Muslims. The majority of Muslims don't want to um, kill or invade, but the majority of that majority wouldn't mind rejoicing. Just like what happened in 9-11, the majority of the Muslim world we're enjoying the moment and just rejoicing for the fact that the great Satan America is being destroyed by the hands of those who believe in Allah and Muhammad. So they wouldn't participate. I'm telling you, the majority, we're talking about probably 98% of the Muslim world would not participate. They just, normal people want to go to work, you know, get married, have children, mm-hmm. but they are under the mercy of this God, the false God that is telling them, if you don't do this, if you don't follow my orders, you're going to hell. 
And some of them sometimes listen to that voice, but the majority of people, they're ignoring it. They're trying to create a false different, mm-hmm. a false version of that false God that is more moderate, that cares about their praying and fasting, not about them hating others. So I would say that I'm, ho- I'm, I'm full of hope that we are actually, in the Islamic world, that we're growing out of this um, fundamentalist, uh, fundamental idea that um, full of hatred and violence. So I'm hopeful. Even Taliban is out of it now. So, yeah. They are not. They are not threatening to kill everybody else. <laughs> well, that's, Especially that's only today's the woman. today's news. Anyway, yeah. and what do you think that people in the Islamic world think about Jesus? Do they? Well, let me yeah. reframe the question. Also, what do they think about Jesus as a persona, as a figure, as a historic figure or religious leader? And and do they think that people who follow Jesus, profess to follow him, actually are doing so, or they've been misled? Um, so the irony is that Muslims believe that Jesus was the greatest human beings ever, even sometimes greater than Muhammad itself himself. Um, he was without a sin. They believe that. And, you know, he was born, uh, for the Virgin Mary. Um, he did all these great miracles. So that's part is covered. Are those things you learned as a child? Yeah, sure. Yes. Yeah. But the thing is that um, some Christians are happy with this. Like, wow. But the truth is that if they are messing with his deity, that doesn't work. It's just deceiving, right? Because at the end it's, oh, but Jesus was just a prophet and he was not dead on the cross. He did not die on the cross for anybody's sin. So I look at that, I and I think Isa, the name of Jesus in Quran, is a different person, completely a different person. I wouldn't go to a Muslim and tell them, I want to tell you about Isa, and uh, because it doesn't work, right? Because that that person is not Jesus. Because that person in the Quran, he said, I am not God. I'm not guilty of telling them that I'm God. It's their problem. So you know, Jesus is actually weak. And in one of the hadiths, uh, or the sayings of Muhammad, he told the story about Jesus as Judah, the Iscariot, you know, mm-hmm. tried to deliver him. Jesus ran away to where his disciples were, and he tried to convince them, who wants to die in my place? And I would give him a castle in heaven. <laughs> so he was using the same currency Muhammad used all the time. Castles in heaven and virgins. Up there, that's and the promise. That's that. That's the currency. That's yeah. how he would buy things. You know, I would give you ten ladies there if you give me this. This mm-hmm. how it happened. I'm sorry, but this is true history. But that's okay. and that's how you. That's how Jesus was trying to. Yeah, but this is also what you just reflected is how you were instructed growing up. That's Absolutely, the world yeah. that you believed. Yeah, yeah. That's okay. how objectifying woman, and you 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 wonder why they want to cover woman. Um, it's. It started as a political sign in the beginning. Muhammad wanted to distinguish Muslim, uh, woman Muslims, uh, Muslim woman, but then uh, it grew from that, from there, and uh, because you know, objectifying women's sexual symbols, 
um, that we want to cover them here because you know we are animals. I'm sorry. I mean, I mean the <laughs> human heart. What the human heart is saying. I'm an animal who is waiting to just um, you devour. Know, yeah, on this uh, victim. So just cover them because here we cannot do that. So it's just just ridiculous to to believe that God is going to distribute women in the latter day. Anyway, so Jesus was trying to convince his disciples to die in his place and to win a castle full of women in heaven. So um, that person is not The story Jesus is not the exactly told the same way. <laughs> Even though Jesus is acknowledged as a real figure of history, yeah. the framing of his story and certainly of his death and resurrection is not found in the Koran as it would be in the New Testament. You know, the thing is, in Koran is that, um, I don't know how to say this in English, but it was like collecting figures from all over the place and just bringing them in a one kind place. Of a synthesis. Yeah, for example, Haman, Haman, in mm-hmm. the book of uh, Esther. Esther, Esther. In the Quran, Haman is the minister, the prime minister of Pharaoh in Egypt. So there, yeah. <laughs> so there's no link, but in, in the Quran, Haman is the minister of uh, Pharaoh. And there is a Samari, Samaritan, lives during the time of Moses. <laughs> so actually, yeah. So, so there's a jumble of uh, biblical narratives. Yes, yes, yes. So it's just um, they, whatever, because there was no printing, you know, uh, what's his name? Edinburgh was not there, or Edinburgh. The, <laughs> he was not there yet. So there was no text. The, the Gutenberg was not there. Yeah. And the uh, um, people were ignorant. They, there were no schools, no universities in the Arab Peninsula. So uh, just oral tradition. Mm-hmm. floating there, and people would grab and choose any of these stories. You're married, Samir. Yes. Uh, so far, you and your wife do not have children. No. By choice, because I understand that if you were to conceive a child and bring one into this world, as a Jordanian citizen still, though you're not resident in Jordan now, uh, the identity of the child would be marked Muslim, and that cannot be changed. Is that, yes. Am I understanding that correctly? And so you're, you're hoping to have a scenario where you might conceive and deliver a child into this world where that would not be the case in a in a way because you have new citizenship in another country or that... Yeah. Is, it sounds like an impossible scenario. You know, recently King Abdullah has changed the law, so they don't show the religion on the ID so it's the king of Jordan. Yes, mm-hmm. but it's still there on the certificate, birth certificate, mm-hmm. and uh, it's still hidden under the black line on your ID. So it's still there. That is um, bringing a child into this world for me. In my in my case, is would be like throwing my kid into hell because you know that you cannot change your religion uh, in Islam. You can't convert. Um, so you're. And Your conversion would be illegitimate in the Islamic view. And and in the Jordanian uh, official view, because in the constitution of Jordan, uh, twice the word apostate was mentioned. So um, actually, if somebody from my family would go to the police and tell them that I'm, I'm an infidel, I would lose my civil rights. So I can't vote, I can't inherit, I can't do a lot of things, right? Mm-hmm. So... Many people, t- they say to me, "This you, you are making the problem, you are making it big. It's not like that. You're going to raise your kid. 
oh, who knows if am I gonna if am I gonna raise my kid? What if I die two days after he's here? But what if my family is to raise him in Jordan? So he will be a Muslim, one hundred percent Muslim, even if he is he believes in Jesus. But in the eyes of the law. And in the eyes of Muslims, he's a Muslim because his ID says so. And then he cannot practice his faith. So that's that's the danger yes. of bringing a kid into the world without being, uh, you know, familiar with the future. I don't know the future of my kid. So but you're describing a world that says that people do not have the free will or the agency to change their faith belief. That's that's true. That's the case in many countries around the world today. No matter what you say or believe, you are marked from birth in a particular channel and can't escape it. That's the idea. And you're, and you're reluctant to bring a child into that system. Yes, of course. Well, you know, sometimes, you know, we believe in God and believe in the sovereignty of God. We rely on him. But at the same time, I cannot ignore the words of Jesus. If you want to build the tower, you said, cost. yeah, he, now I'm going to build a human being. I'm not going to build the tower. So I have to just consider how, how if, if this tower is going to a lot of troubles in his future. <laughs> you live now uh, in Beirut. Yes. Uh, Beirut is a city that I have visited several times. It's a crossroads. I mean, it's a fascinating place. Uh, spectacularly beautiful. I don't think people realize how beautiful Beirut in its setting can yes. be. But for all of that, we know that it's also had a troubled history in modern time. And uh, there's been the Lebanese civil war that raged. And then there was uh, kind of an enforced peace by Syrian occupation. And then yeah. there's been turmoil between the various factions, religious communities in Lebanon. I mean, it's a place of great, great challenge and difficulty. And not so long ago, there was a disaster in Beirut that was not uh, the consequence of warfare per se, but it might be argued was the consequence of some of the failure of public administration. But anyway, there was this explosion yeah. that devastated so much of the city. And I think uh, we have some pictures of that uh, explosion. When, when, when did this happen, uh, Samir? So um, this uh, took place on August 4, uh, 2020. Last year. So just one year ago, yeah, uh, and uh, we're looking at this uh, first picture of an explosion that started uh, on the waterfront. What happened? Yeah, this picture doesn't say anything. You have to go to YouTube and just <laughs> write Beirut blast and see it's, what happened. Yes, yeah, so, I mean here, here this uh, this is a second picture that shows the yeah. aftermath of it. Yeah, this is just around the explosion site, but actually the explosion was heard in Cyprus and Jordan. That is like uh, hundreds of miles away. And people were affected by it um, up to 30 kilometers or 25 miles away from the explosion site. Some places were shattered and destroyed. So it, it, it is believed to be the second largest explosion in the history, non-nuclear non explosion, yes. <laughs> the second largest. So, um, what was its cause, or what's the nitrate, nitrate, sodium nitrate that uh, that was stored at the port of Beirut for seven years? There are many theories. 
So nobody knows the truth. And in Beirut, it's it's the graveyard of truth. <laughs> so you can't know nothing. And probably the birthplace of a hundred conspiracies. Yes. This is a, a third picture that just shows the, I mean, just the complete devastation. I mean, an earthquake, a hurricane. Yeah. Uh, a bombing could not have no, wrought any more destruction not. than this. And I understand about 300,000 people lost their homes and were displaced. That's, that's true. I mean, that, that is a, a you know, 15, 15 hours of civil war did not uh, cause uh, as much destruction as this explosion. Yeah. 15 years. And you yeah. were in the city at the time? Yes. And you remember it? Yeah, sure. I mean, you didn't see it or you just felt it? How was it? I was in my office and I always tell this story. Have you seen, have you seen Seinfeld? Yes. So George Costanza, I was watching George Costanza in um, in that episode. He was um, he's he's perceived as a coward by his girlfriend. So he always run away. Uh, the first person to run away from a disaster place. <laughs> so I was watching that, um, and the following morning, I was in my office, and uh, the explosion happened. It was so crazy, so loud, so noisy. So I left the office, the first person to leave the office. And I was going down the stairs. I was like thinking of George Costanza. <laughs> I was in the office, and yeah. And, and, but when it happened, you probably could not have comprehended what it was. No. We, I, I was thinking maybe the building is collapsing. We didn't know what, what was happening. There was... Uh, an earthquake, then there was a noise, so we didn't we didn't comprehend it until so our office was shattered. All the glasses in our office and the windows were out of their place. And uh, even though we are four miles from the uh, explosion site, um, so so all the people are dis displaced. They're refugees, really, in their own city. I mean, the human need had to be catastrophic. Well, um, um, many, many churches, many organizations, many countries um, have been trying to help. It, it has been over a year now, and uh, thank God most homes were fixed. Um, but, of course, there's a battle now between the insurance companies and uh, the owners of huge buildings, commercial buildings, because the insurance company is not going to pay anything if it was a tourist attack. Mm -hmm. And... Um, the government is not saying <laughs> it was terrorist or not. So there's like the huge buildings in Beirut are not fixed yet because they're waiting. Right, right. So there's still, you can see the scars still. A year, Absolutely, a year yeah. Later. That, that's not going to go away for a very long time. And you, Samir, have been engaged to bring life uh, everywhere you go. As you have described your own journey, you have a deep passion. Yeah that people might uh, find life and hope in the here and now, not just waiting for the, for the end. And that has led you to become an interlocutor for relief. I mean, I, I understand that hundreds of thousands of dollars U.S. have been uh, channeled uh, through what you do to help provide yeah. relief to people in Beirut. Tell me about that. Yeah, so basically I try all the time to separate charity from the gospel work mm -hmm. because I don't want people to follow for the bread. Mm -hmm. uh, and there are a lot of organizations who do this and that. Uh, they provide food and all of that. So I, I, for a very long time, I wouldn't do this. But on the night of the explosion, I was driving my car, my car, my wife next to me, and I wanted to explore the area after the explosion. And I was heartbroken over Beirut. What happened to Beirut? You know, the, the city... You know, when Americans hear the word Beirut, they think of 
1984, I mm-hmm. believe. They don't like that word, but Beirut is full of beautiful people oh, yes. who, who just want to live and laugh and uh, they really respect the Western values and they are actually, they have implemented the Western values in, in Lebanon. So, you know, looking at all these places destroyed, I felt like there's no way, there's no way that I can do anything. So I just went back home, I've written an email and uh, started contacting all of my friends around the world, ask, asking for help. And um, yeah, within four months, we have fixed 2,000 units in Beirut. and uh, 2,000 homes. 2,000 homes, Places yes. for people to live. Yes, and uh, that, was, uh, that was amazing. And um, of course, you have also to look at the positive side yes, of the story. Yes. It's like people who have never... Oh, they would never allow um, the message of the gospel to enter their homes. They were wide open. There was no doors, literally. <laughs> literally there. <laughs> to stop the yes, message of the gospel. Yes. And within just one year, we are, hundreds of people are attending our Bible studies and our meetings. It's, it's just crazy, you know. It's, uh, what, what God has done um, with Syrians after the war, churches are filled <laughs> with people from Syria. Mm-hmm. And now the most difficult group on earth would be the Maronite, Lebanese Maronite, <laughs> who, would, who would die for being a Maronite Catholic. Yes. yes. They are coming to evangelicals, uh, Bible studies and worship gatherings. So it's, um, of course, we can't, we can't understand everything, but we know that God is uh, sovereign oh. over this. We know he can turn the devil's mischief for the good. Yeah, and an explosion like this had to be the devil's business, but I'm hearing you describe some good, but also the generosity of friends far and near. Amen. Yeah, and the way in which it's been multiplied to provide shelter and the home, uh, extraordinary, but still an enormous tragedy. The headlines march on, but people in Beirut still live with this reality, and it's on top yeah. of another reality in Lebanon, which has been. Hugely impacted by refugees from neighboring countries and all of the the fighting in Syria over many years, for instance. Uh, yeah, I read once that uh, there may be one out of every four people in Lebanon is a refugee, and it's a small country. Actually, and now, there are more now. Now there's a higher proportion, yeah, yeah. and now an explosion like this has magnified that. Uh, you know, believe material. it or not, the explosion, as big as it was, and COVID. They were only like fractions when it comes to what is going on in Lebanon. Mm-hmm. Lebanon is going through one of the hardest crises in history since 1850. What's happening in Lebanon now is that the bank accounts of the Lebanese people were cleaned out. There's nothing left. There's no money in the bank. No, 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 no nothing. You can't get your money if you have mm-hmm. anything in the bank. There, the currency, infl- the inflation of the currency, 1,000%. You can say 100%, but it's 1,000% <laughs> because each dollar yeah. used to be 1,500 lira or pound. Today, it's 20,000. That's even more than that. People can't find medications. There's, uh, uh, this is not exaggeration. This is like literally, there is nothing in the pharmacies. Nothing you can. If you're sick, there was... Uh, a group of people who are who are with cancer 
just on the streets last week, calling and begging, please, we need medications. They were on the street there with no hair on their heads. It's so, so um, tragic what's happening now. And if you want to fill gas in your car, you have to wait five hours in line to get... As a routine. Four, yes. It's not just today. That's yeah, just the way it is. Yes. To get um, four gallons, just four gallons. Um, so the explosion happened, added to the tragedy and COVID, of course, and the political collapse. So it's uh, that's why... Um, our ministry in, in Lebanon feels like God is positioning us in a very special time in the history of this country, which is, by the way, is the last land of freedom in the Middle East next to Israel, because we don't consider even Israel from the Middle East because it's European style. So yes. the only democracy in the Middle East, the only country where you can say almost whatever you want, where you can carry a bag full of copies of the Bible and just hand them out mm-hmm. on the streets. And it is the only place where all the Christians from the Middle East come for conferences, meetings, because they can do that in their countries. So, yeah, Lebanon needs needs help. And um, generous uh, brothers and sisters from the U.S. have helped Lebanon for years and years through many different churches, and the Church of God is an example of what what God is doing there. Well, we want uh, all those who have tuned into this podcast, whether you be watching us uh, on video, uh, on YouTube, or maybe you have been listening to this as an audio podcast, we want you to know that if you would like to help invest in life in Lebanon and relief, just as you've uh, described it, Samir, Uh, We want you to contact us because we will build a bridge so that uh, what you hope to do with a gift, we will will make sure it falls into the right hands. And uh, we hope that you will like uh, our podcast as you're listening today or watching, that you'll like, that you'll leave a comment in the social media feed where you found us, that you will uh, just help us uh, get the word out. And Samir, as you have described the situation in Lebanon and... I mean, the, the huge challenges it faces, I mean, from so many fronts. Uh, as you look at the world from which you've come in Jordan, as you look at the world that has uh, so, many, so many challenges, especially in your part of the world, is there something hopeful? Do you feel uh, hopeful? You, you had a sense of hope that in Lebanon right now, you and your team are positioned to do much good, but... Tell me in a bigger picture, are you hopeful about some developments? <clears throat> well, for the first time in um, in the Middle East, you can see people who are um, full of hope because now people are being ashamed more and more of the strict ideas that they used to promote in the past. For example, the 9-11 in 2002, there was no Facebook. 2003, there was Facebook. Mm-hmm. In 1911, 2003, if you go to Facebook, you know, the Arab word, and you read the comments and the posts, it's all against America, all with the not with what happened 9-11. Fast forward 2021, um, I was like the person to tears the other day because of, I was reading the comments. It 
was almost 50-50. People are saying things, positive things about, uh, and they are, you know, standing for freedom. They're standing for uh, many values that uh, used to be lacked in that world. So that's why I'm hopeful. The social media has given me this, um, the like, just this wave of um, consciousness mm-hmm. is invading the the Middle East, and many people are like they are awake now. Um, so this is what I say. What I always say about evan- evangelism, I say, even if people don't convert, there is something happened there. Mm-hmm. It's like they get the package. They throw Christianity out of it, but they keep the package. So these people are keeping the package of human rights, freedom, um, human dignity. Um, so all of these things, this is the package that Christianity bring with, right? So they are keeping the package, but they don't believe in Christ. So I want that to happen. I want to uh, spread the values, the Christian values and the Arab word. The same way the Christian values are... Um, uh, in uh, Finland, in Norway, in Denmark, all these countries that they say, we are an atheist, we don't need Christianity. I tell them, no problem, but <laughs> you have the package <laughs> that Christianity have yes. left there. So this is what I want to see in the Middle East. And I'm, I'm hopeful now, if you asked me this question a few years back, I wouldn't say this, but... Yeah. I'm hearing you say that uh, social media actually has played a part in helping people reevaluate. Yeah where they are, what they think, and uh, have a broader perspective. I sometimes hear people say that social media is, is a curse because it, yeah. it challenges and it pollutes people's uh, you know, order. But you're saying no. In the, in the Middle East, it's actually a window through which light comes. Yeah, I think that people who work for station and televisions and stuff like that, they don't like this, but... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, social media is going to kill their careers. They have to switch. <laughs> social media is coming. And it's, uh, at least in the Middle East, in the West, it has done what it has done already, right? Yes, but right. in the Middle East, it's coming more and more. Um, if you if you follow that media in the Arab world, you know, sometimes you criticize the media in, in the West, but that is nothing compared to the media in the Arab world. The lies, the conspiracies, the theories, crazy, ridiculous theories. Americans are in Afghanistan because they want gold from the mines, the caves that is hidden. <laughs> so all these stories. But now the social media is different. Social media is like 1,000 resources telling you different things, and then you start connecting the dots. Actually, it's an automatic operation that takes place in your mind. When you read a lot of things, you, sh- you are exposed to a lot of resources, then something starts to make sense in your mind. So it's an automatic outcome um, that you become more reasonable and more accepting. Because, you know, people in the Arab world for many years, they would look at the West and think the image in their mind is that satanic people are living in the West people who wants to suck our blood and take mm-hmm. our oil um, who live in the West. And uh, those uh, pornographic stars who wear the cross are the Christian ladies who wants to destroy our ethics. But now they are exposed to humane 
as stories. They are exposed to feelings and emotions and stories. They're beginning, they, they began to see that, oh, the Christian, Christians in the West, they are fathers, mothers. They are human beings who are in pain. They could be in pain like us. And the same thing is happening with Jewish. So they look at the Jewish people. They don't have horns anymore. They don't have tails. They, think, they used to think that they have tails. <laughs> So that's that's why I believe uh, we are free from the media and the Arab world because we have been slaves for decades and decades. Only a few people who run the media and the Arab world would determine everything that we can read or see. But now it's different. Even if they don't speak English, Subtitle is being added to the videos. They get to just see and experience all of these. This is a new word that's coming to their homes and changing them, whether they like it or not. And as you've described that kind of opening of the eyes, made me wonder about looking in the other direction. What are the prejudices about the Arab world that we hold in the West that we need to reconsider? Yeah, first of all, we don't ride camels. <laughs> well, there you go. There's a stereotype. <laughs> no, just, you know, there are Lamborghinis, Ferrari, Porsche, all kind of sport cars in the Middle East. <laughs> of course. And we have snow. <laughs> That's <There's> snow. <laughs> so um, the majority of our people are uh, not people who are against Americans. The majority are in love with America, and they want to move here, not to destroy America, but to achieve the American dream. And um, they're different in how they do things. They yell when they talk, <laughs> because when you grow up in a home where you, you can't talk, nobody listens to you, you tend to raise your voice, and Arabs, have been raised that way, not in their homes, but as a nations, mm -hmm. as nations. Nobody would listen to them. Only the dictator who was running the country would say everything and nobody else talks. That's why they yell. A lot of different factors, but they do things different way. Um, that's why many Americans look at Arabs and think they're weird or they're scary, but they're not. There are some, some Arabs are just look tough like I do, but they have a tender heart and uh, their intention is good. I'm telling you, I'm not talking about everybody. Not all Americans are good, right? but I'm talking about Arabs in particular. They have values, but these values are different from the values in the West. So for example, they would die to, um, if you ask anything from them, they would die to give you that thing. Mm -hmm. If you ask for help from them, go to any country in that world as a tourist, for example, and ask them to get you anything. I, I, uh, um, uh, what do you call it? I, uh, like, let's bet on this. <laughs> ask for anything. They would do anything possible to give it to you. There's a generosity of spirit. They're very generous, very hospitable. Um, but as I said, they're different. You know, people are different. The craziness, this is what I tell my wife all the time when we, See, the other day we saw some guy uh, here in the U.S. 
and he is like trying to wear wear like a tree. He's trying to look like a tree. There was a tree coming out of his <laughs> shirt, and so I told her, you know, the craziness is different. <laughs> Our crazy is different than their crazy, right? But there's crazy everywhere. They're crazy everywhere. Uh, but um, I I appreciated when Americans at the beginning when I started coming here, and until today, I have been coming here for years, and until today, when Americans are open and grace uh, graceful that they're they're dealing with me with grace like they try to understand if i ask a wrong the wrong question you know they're bored with if we have different kind of questions we can ask you about your salary we can't do that here right mm-hmm. so it's like mm-hmm. so we appreciate that as an arab i would appreciate that and the same thing in the arab world um so just normal human beings who are um you know could be in pain could they have dreams and all of that but i would say always share the gospel always share the gospel because and the gospel of grace in particular because there are different versions of the gospel out there um the gospel of grace just the, these need, these people need to hear that they're loved and they need to see what what love is what does it look like because they don't know what what does it look like and um it, god is a big deal in their life so that's that's your your that's There's the a key. door that's the door yeah to talk about god and here's another thing arabs think that uh, all the west as i said are christians and christians are all these people in the in hollywood mm-hmm. so try to explain that they're not <laughs> that's uh, yeah. Just, yeah help help them understand that what does it mean to be a christian not not because of uh, the appearance but because of the values you know it's not, uh, the appearance is uh, deceiving um the values is that uh, christians believe that god is so majestic and that god is one and that god is holy and that god has wrath he can destroy the word if he wants but he chose to have mercy on the word and to love the word so this love you of god like god is loving god is all of this kind and good things that is not enough god is god and he's a whole he's like he has wrath and he has love so all his attributes are at work at the same time his wrath was received by jesus his love is received by us so we need to give a holistic uh, um, image of god to the islamic world because they they have this image of the sovereign majestic god alone it doesn't have it's not complete the goodness of god or the the work of christ in it love of god so the love of god goodness of god the holiness of god the three of them in islam it's only the you know the big guy up there but christians have the i call it the second trinity it's the sovereignty of god the goodness of god and the love of god the three of them together uh, because if you have the sovereignty of god and you don't have the love of god and the goodness of god you will be crushed just like muslims they are crushed by the fact that god's so sovereign that's fatalism that's okay so god does this because and you start analyzing but in christianity 
we don't only have the sovereignty of God, we have the goodness of God. So whatever happens, whatever comes my way, it's a blessing because I only get to have the blessings of God because of what Jesus has done. Even if the blessing of God is coming to me covered by something I perceive as evil or not good. Because of his love, of course. Well, which brings us to Jesus as the subject. Amen. That's the complete picture, isn't it, of God? I know, uh, Samir, you're a man of courage. You're a man of deep principle and a deep devotion to the ideas that have framed and clothed you. And you're not afraid to take a stand. So now I ask, you have visited the United States this fall. Yeah. You're returning home now to the Middle East but you have watched the National Football ball <laughs> League play. So yeah. what would you say is the greatest NFL team that you've yeah. ever watched? The Seahawks, guys. Oh, well. <laughs> there no, we go. I, 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 can't, I can't betray my friend John <laughs> back there. I'm all, a Colts guy. All, so all that <laughs> you have already lost me. So. All that to say, <laughs> <laughs> there are uh, things in life that uh, people may disagree about, but we can still be friends. Amen. We're so glad to have you. Thank uh, you, Jim. Samir, thanks for your work and uh, sharing with us today. And again, if you have been listening to us or watching us today, please like us on social media, send a comment to that social media feed, uh, and let us hear from you. Uh, and we will also put you in touch with this great work that's going on to provide relief in Lebanon just now, a country in desperate need. Samir, if you were to pronounce a blessing in Arabic, your first language, what would you say? Well, there is a word that is common amongst Muslims and non-Muslims alike, and that word is marhaba. Marhaba, it means hello. I'm not going to say hello at the end, but I'm going to say marhaba, which means hello. <laughs> and marhaba means God is love, but Muslims don't know that. It is a Syriac word that fi found its way into mm -hmm. the Arabic language, and uh, we use it every day. But uh, at the roots of that word is marhaba, which is God is love. So marhaba, everybody. Marhaba. Marhaba. For more information, visit allthattosay.org. Thank you for joining the conversation. Don't forget to like and subscribe.